The Lord be with you, and I want to continue with Matthew chapter 5, and this verse 5, this next passage of what Jesus said to the disciples, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And right away, um, in talking to a number of people coming up to talking to you, uh, there's, there's a kind of problem in the minds of people. I mean, this word bless that uh, uh, defines this whole passage, and, and do you remember, it's been a few weeks since we talked about it, it's it's a word that defines the people who are walking, living in these various aspects of the kingdom of God. And it, it describes, it's, it's a big word, it describes the great joy. Um, it, it describes heart um, blessedness that we might today say a person is extremely fortunate. It, it means you are, you are so filled with a heart joy that you are to be envied for your joy, your contentment. It, it also means um, an expression of delight and contentment. Uh, one of the best uh, translations I know of it is that it's a state of bliss. And everything that comes to mind when I say that word bliss, it's right there in, in the heart of blessed. It also contains idea of abundance, that God is not a miser. He never holds back from giving you fullness and so the word prosperity is here too, but prosperity of heart, not mere the mere outward externals. This is internal prosperity of life. And all of that arises from union and communion uh, with God, a, a relationship with God that is bathed in pure joy. Um, so God himself is the sole author, the initiator of blessing. Now, okay, that's the word blessed, as we've seen in weeks before. But when that is coupled with righteousness, now a lot of people will not be honest about this. Um, but the fact is, as I have put this to many people, how they link this idea of a supreme and infinite joy, this state of bliss with the word righteousness and people's faces kind of fall and they ruffle their feet and they begin to say, well, I really don't associate extreme joy with righteousness. The, the word righteousness brings up many images to us Western folk, but certainly it doesn't, at least in numbers of persons, it doesn't bring up the idea uh, of joyous excitement and bliss. And when you link it again to hunger and thirst after righteousness, I just got blank stares. 
And I realize that we've got to spend some time finding out what righteousness is. Because obviously what the Bible means by righteousness is not what thousands of people have been taught righteousness is. We've found this trouble before. There are words in the Bible that are uniquely Christian words or they are words that come to us from deep roots in the Old Testament. And therefore, we've got to find the definition for those words right there in the Old Testament where they began, not as they became as history unfolded. Um, See, this this is a word. Righteousness is a word that essentially has been lost into to the black hole of a certain aspect of religion, and it's very difficult to restore its true meaning. I, I can tell you the meaning I'm going to tonight, but to have that meaning so imprinted upon your heart that when the word righteousness is said, then the true meaning leaps into your mind Oh, God, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and open our ears that that might be the case. That when we hear the word righteousness, we hear this incredible truth concerning a relationship with God. Because when you talk of blessedness and when you talk of hunger and thirst, you're talking about a relationship. And I found that most people believe that righteousness essentially means a long list of rules that you have to keep. And when you've kept them all, you sort of pass the exam and you're now righteous. And the very word seems to stick in people's mouths because that's what they're thinking of. And and, and sort of so the, the inquisitor uh, addressing you, are you righteous? Have you Have you kept all of the commandments and so on? No, that's not what the word means. Please scrub that out of your mind. It's not what the word means. It it came to mean that. You see, what has happened? We took the word righteousness out of the uh, society, the simple society of the Old Testament where persons entered into covenant and understood this word righteousness And it was a word of the peasants. It was a word of ranches over the kitchen table. It was a simple word. And then somewhere around the 6th, 7th century, they turned that into an ugly word. They, They ripped it away from their roots in the Old Testament and planted it in the Roman law courts of righteousness and a judge to make sure you kept the righteousness. No, see, we've got to get back there. Come and sit with those simple peasants of the Old Testament and over the kitchen table understand what righteousness meant from the very beginning. You see, the disciples who were the first hearers of this, Jesus was speaking to the disciples these words. Well, when they heard the word righteousness, well, that they, they had been raised in the Old Testament. 
The, the, the roots of these words went deep down into the Old Testament and, and the whole understanding of daily life in a covenant society revolved around this word righteousness. All their hopes in God, all their hope in the promises of God, it was all wrapped up in this word righteousness. You see, and that vocab have you noticed there are so many words and they they were given in in the old testament god gave them into the hebrew language in the old testament and those those words even the grammar and the way it was said became part of the word of god do you understand that the word of god were very specifically in certain words and they were in the Hebrew language, and they were in the context of a Hebrew society and covenant and way of looking at life. And, and, and so these words, they arose out of what God said, what God did in those Old Testament days, and they became the bricks and the mortar in, in, in the contractor's yard that the new covenant is going to be built out of. And he's going to give us light as to what Jesus would say and do. Please understand that the, these words, you see, you don't hear people in the supermarket talking about righteousness um, or poor in spirit or sanctification or justification. No, they're, they're our words. And where do we get them? From the Old Testament. But they were hijacked and turned into ugly words. Okay. That's enough of that. Okay. Righteousness is one of those words that came to us from the vocabulary of Old Testament Israel as they were, unwittingly maybe, but God was using this new language and vocabulary to give us the language of salvation. And all of this vocabulary... And I'm, I'm going to just talk about righteousness now. But the whole vocabulary of these words that describe salvation, it, it was a language, a vocabulary fashioned by the covenant. Please let that sink in. You don't go to Webster's Dictionary to find out what righteousness means. The, the, the word righteousness came out of the covenant and it can never be understood in any other way. In fact, all the words of God's promises, they stand in the context of the covenant. So I know many of you know, you've listened to me before, but let's start as if you don't know. What is covenant? If this is the, shall I say, the, the, the stew pot out of which all these words emerged, the covenant. Well, covenant, and our difficulty here is there's hardly any uh, reference to covenant in today's Western society. We, we again have taken all the life out of covenant, turned it on his head and called it a contract. But a covenant is the ultimate relationship which has been with the human race since it began and has been used in the language of God to reveal to us his love. 
What, what is covenant? Covenant is when two parties, and that can be two people or it can be two nations, whatever, but two parties, uh, and hear me very carefully every word I say, two parties come together and they come together intentionally. That is, they, they, it's, it's not just on a whim. It's not something they decide over a cup of coffee. This is intention because they are bringing their entire lives and joining them together. It's an intentional joining of two parties, two lives, and it is so solemn that they do that with with a blood oath. They swear their lives to each other with a blood oath which I mean it's it's an oath that is made with the cutting of the body and the shedding of blood, by which to say they are obligating themselves to each other. That is, no one's making them do it. They are choosing of their own intention to obligate themselves to each other, to give themselves to each other, even to the point where it will cost them their life. Hence the shedding of blood, a blood oath when, when they do so. This is even if I die doing so. I stand with you, I stand for you, I give myself to you. And then, because it was an oath, they called upon God to be witness And so calling upon God and upon their own lives that they would forfeit if the oath were broken, so a covenant was made, very solemn. And and there was a certain ceremony that I'll refer to further on, but but that, that in a nutshell is what a covenant is, that binding together, this coming into total union, And it was looked upon as um, a a union that could never be broken, which is where the Western world, and um, the Brits especially so, uh, had no clue of that, no clue. And and so right here in North America, um, when treaties were made with Indians, who understood covenant very well. And in in the Sioux language, there is no word for a broken covenant because they can't imagine that it could happen. And and in those early days um, of of this nation, the white man broke every covenant that he made with the Indians. And the Indians stood speechless. No person had ever been known to break a covenant. But you see, that that's why it's so difficult for us to explain a covenant, because it's unknown in our Western society to forfeit your very life rather than break the covenant. And so, um, the covenant, okay, here you've got these two parties that they have joined together, and the promises of that kind of love one to another that shall define the way they live their lives together. Um, okay, that living out the terms of the covenant, that keeping the promises of covenant, that making a reality, this union together, 
and working at that and working together toward that, those persons in that relationship were designated as righteous. Took a long time to get there, didn't it? Righteous. It means that I will live truth. I gave myself to you. I gave you promises associated with that. And I will not lie. I will not alter that covenant. I will not turn from it. I will not betray you. I will always be for you. That is a righteous person. One who lives life according to that uh, covenant word that was spoken and that that person gave with intention. Righteous. In, in old uh, English, by which I mean a long time ago, righteousness uh, was pronounced or written right-wise. Right-wise. That is living in the wisdom of truth and love. That is right, and the right is living in the truth the truth that I swore to with my own blood and the love which I now hold toward you by my intention. That, that's the right. Well, right-wise means I live in the wisdom, the wise, the wisdom of that truth and love. I, I, I'm not a... I, I don't have a forked tongue. I, I, I don't speak out of both sides of my mouth. I gave myself to you. That's no longer up for discussion. I belong to you. Amazingly, we were created. That means we are wired. It means this is the way our basic humanity was made. We were created to a covenant inclusion, shall I say. We were we were created to be included. That's part of being human. Included into covenant with God. You see, all mankind in ancient days understood two human parties coming into covenant. But we begin to stand with open mouth from the very beginning of the Scripture that we were created... Humans were created to be in covenant with God. Think about that one. But sin, sin is covenant breaking. That is, sin was the rising up, believing not the truth of God, but instead believing the lie of the liar and going my own way, and rejecting union with God. Sin is breaking the most ultimate relationship humans were ever called to. And hence, because of the forfeiture of life, if you do so, the day you do so, you die. And so death entered into the very heart and life of the human. But you see, God kept covenant. Human broke covenant, but then God didn't say, well then, 
it's over. I've had it with you. You break covenant. I'm finished. No, that's again, begin to get used to an open mouth of amazement that God did not reject the human because the covenant was broken. Rather, this word grace emerges that God's grace, that is the total givingness of himself in his personal action to restore mankind, humans like you and I, to covenant and to restore us to covenant with him as Adam had never actually come to know. So this amazing, astonishing love of God from the opening pages of the Bible describes God's relationship to us in terms of a covenant. Let the words sink in. God, self-obligation, that is, it's not because you've done something. It's not because that you're, you're, you know, you're such a person, God just can't stop, you know, thinking you're great. No, it's got nothing to do with us in that sense. It's a self-obligation. God says, this is who I am. I cannot lie. I cannot forsake being love. He gives himself because he's put that obligation upon his very being. It arises from who he is. And he gives himself to us in a covenant love to us who have rejected and broken covenant. But he had gives himself to us and he swears by his own being that he would remove everything that separated us from his covenant love and his love intentions. He would take it upon himself. He takes the covenant oath upon himself. Now hear me, that meant that if he did not keep his promise, then God would cease to be. Did you get that? If you've, you've heard me for the last 20 minutes, that a covenant carries with it that calling upon oneself. This is a blood oath. If I do not keep this covenant, then I, I die. I, I forfeit my life. Do, do, do you hear me? God's love is covenant love to you, which means that God takes it upon himself, that he will fulfill his oath, his promise to you. And if he would not do it, then God would cease to exist and the universe would be no more. And that's something to try and sleep on. Huh. His covenant faithfulness declares that we, you and I, are included into the intimate fellowship of Holy Trinity love. He has sworn by himself. It's not just an idea that popped into God's head. He created you with this intent, and sin did not change him. Sin cannot change God. 
sin that we commit. We're little pipsqueaks thinking we can change God, that now he's upset because we sinned. No, his love is unfailing. His love will never abandon us. His love is inescapable. His love comes to the bottom of our filthy pit of sin and says, I love you and forgive you. He has sworn by himself he'll watch over us and keep us. He swore by his own self to provide for us in all aspects of our life. He swore by himself never to leave us, never to forsake us, but to keep us in his unchanging covenant love. And keeping this oath, which he has from the beginning of our history, that's the God we've seen who refuses to be put off. The God who refuses to become frustrated. The God who just goes on and on and on, though at every step he is faced with the hostility of the human. So, against all that would defy his intents, with everything that we raise that would separate us from him, he continues to keep his covenant word. And therefore, the scripture speaks of the righteousness of God. He is the covenant keeper, and he can and will never depart his promise. He will never cease to be who he is. The righteousness of God. And it's authored by the love of God. Okay. Uh, but, but just a minute. The question is, what, what does the human do to be included into the covenant? See? I mean, the covenant is two parties. Two parties coming into a functional union, an intimate life together. So, so yeah, I've spoken about the righteousness of God, that he will be who he will be and nothing shall stop him. But what about the human? How, what, what does the human do to be included into the covenant what, what does the human do to be called righteous? Huh. See, religion, and especially since those early centuries of the church when corruption came in, um, religion has so arrogantly given its formulas and all its rituals as, as to being a means of being righteous and accepted. I don't want to go into it because I think you're well aware of what I'm saying. Um, that That's what's behind all these lists of rules and um, all the lists of sins that we're, we're so aware of as Christians in the 21st century. That, that it, you know, the religion is given that if you do this, if you do this, if you don't do this and don't do that, then you will be righteous. And if you keep every command of God, which of course they, they look at those commands through the eyes of, of a legal system and judges, not covenant. But see, 
This is what you've got to do to be righteous, it says. Uh, but the trouble is, if we went no further than that, um, anyone that's listening to me right now, if you have seriously tried to keep all those rules in order to raise to a standard called righteousness, then you've discovered by now the, the sinking feeling that is in the heart just when you would do any introspection and look at how am I doing and the, the answer is am I doing enough, you see. Because some people look, say, shall we say, as a prayer, as one of those rules, you've got to pray every day. Well, how long did you pray? Was it enough? Did you pray enough? See, that that upsets a lot of people just to ask the question. See, did, did you read your Bible enough today that we could call you righteous? Have you helped enough people? Have you... You know what I'm saying. No, it doesn't matter how deep I go, how I I grasp uh, upon my willpower and my promises and my dedications, I come out of it saying, is that enough? See, the amazing thing is, and I'll go into it further, but just let's get it settled, that the revelation of God the revelation of his righteousness is the gospel. And therefore, we are brought into righteousness not by looking into ourselves and adding one more rule to make it enough, but rather to abandon all rules and to look away from ourselves and look to the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and trust God's righteousness. Did you hear me? The gospel, the news that God has come to us in Jesus Christ, the gospel that he loves you, And he will go even to death to fulfill his covenant. I look to that. I believe that. And therein discover that he now includes me into the covenant and declares me righteous. Look, it's in the scripture. I wasn't making it up. Romans 1 verse 16 Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news concerning Jesus, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he covers all of society, the Jew and the Greek. For in it the God, listen, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, he quotes from the Old Testament, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That is, the righteous man doesn't live by trying hard. The righteous man does not live by piling rule upon rule to impress God. But rather, he lives by faith, trusting in the righteousness of God, trusting in God's keeping his word He who is the truth, 
the righteous one who cannot lie, then I trust him. He said he would save me. He said his love never failed, and I abandon myself and I trust him. And he declares me righteous, that is, included into the covenant. Look, the first mention, and, and let me say that some people talk about the law of first mention, and I believe there's a lot to that. That is, the very first time certain words or ideas are expressed in Scripture, many times that first mention contains the whole truth. Well, the first mention of this covenant and the righteousness relationship is to be found as early in the Scripture as Genesis 15. Okay, keep in mind everything I've said, but now let's look at when it was actually initiated to Abraham. Genesis 15. After these things, we won't even go there. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Notice the Lord says, I am a shield and essentially, I am your reward. That is, that's who I am to you. You're, you're touching this, this oath. God is speaking out of his own intention and swearing by himself, that's who I am. It doesn't depend on Abraham. Now, Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's referring to the fact that the Lord had promised to him a son, and that son would be the beginning of a great nation. And through that great nation, ultimately would come one who would be the blessing and the salvation of the entire world. Only now, Abraham is very advanced in years. He was about my age. And his his little wife is... 10 years younger or so, and he's saying, look, you made these promises. You, you promised your blessing. You promised a land. You promised a nation. You promised a savior to the world, and here I am. We don't even have a son to start with, and he said, I, I, I've been thinking about it, and I, I, I really think what you really meant. I, I know what you said, but I think you really meant that somebody that I would adopt would then be the heir and would be the author of this nation. So I, I've chosen Eliezer of Damascus. He, he's my head servant. I trust the man with my life. And I thought I'll adopt him and he'll become the heir and the beginner of the nation and, and the savior to come. What do you think, Lord? I, that, that's, that's where I'm, I'm thinking. Well, then... Behold, says the scripture, the word of the Lord came to Abraham saying, this man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. He might be a jolly good fellow, but he's not. No, I'm not talking about an adopted son. I'm talking about one who shall come forth from your own body, old man. He shall become your son, your heir, and through him this great nation and savior will come. 
And then, it says, the Lord took him outside the tent and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And as Abraham looked up at the sky in a day when there was no um, light uh, of human origin, so the sky filled with a million stars, and uh, when you're in such a situation as I have been, it seems the stars are just above the treetops. The whole sky is alive with millions, billions of stars. And the Lord says, go on, look at them. That's what I'm talking about. He says, count the stars if you're able to count them, because so, so shall your descendants be. Okay. So then, it says, Abraham believed. And our translation has believed in the Lord. Best leave that in out. He just believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is, reckoned it to him as being included into the covenant. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, that's where Abraham was born and came from, to give you this land to possess it. Then he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? And of course that included the sun and everything else. So the Lord said, now this this is where it gets incredible. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer. And I mean, I'm not going to go into everything else, the the animal and the birds that were brought. But he, he brought all the creatures that God told him to bring. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. I, I'm, I'm sure that you, you don't get too excited about how sacrifices were made, but I want you to get excited about this. This is not just a sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament to God. This is a sacrifice that was made every time a covenant was made. This is exactly what they did in ancient times to make a covenant. They had these animals and they were brought and they were sacrificed to God but it was specifically for the making of covenant. And they cut them in half, and they laid the half on either side, making a pathway of blood. And the parties of the covenant would walk that path. So if I was entering into covenant with you, you would walk that path of blood. Your hand would be raised where you had cut, and your own blood was running down. And there you swore before God and before me and before witnesses that you were thus giving yourself to me. And as you walked that path of blood, so I would walk the other way. We would walk the path of blood, swearing our lives to each other. So what the Lord told Abraham to do was to make a covenant pathway of blood. And then it says, it became very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. 
That is a blazing fire. The fire of God's presence. And listen, it says, which passed between the pieces. Just as the human did when making a covenant. So the flaming presence of God passed between the pieces. And he says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So God reckoning Abraham to be righteous is parallel to the Lord making a covenant with him. But just a minute, it gets better or crazier, whichever way you look at it. It says the flaming fire, the presence of God went between the pieces. Well, then it Abraham should have been the other person going through the pieces. But he's not. In fact, he was asleep, seeing this all in vision. Uh, so, only God passed between the pieces. Only God swore by his own being to keep this covenant. Do you realize what it's saying? That God made covenant with Abraham, but he also took Abraham's place so that Abraham was in this covenant not by his own intention and willpower, not because he was some extraordinary person who could keep covenant like, no, God said, I make covenant with you, but I also take your side of the covenant Therefore, this covenant has no weak link in it. It's got none of the weaknesses of Abraham. This covenant is 100% me. I'm taking my side and your side, and I am swearing for both of us that this is what I'm going to do. Going to do to you, Abraham, to you, the children that shall come from you, the great nation, but specifically to the one through whom this covenant shall go to the entire world. And he said, it's got nothing to do with your strength and with your intent and willpower. It's got everything and only to do with my intent. So therefore, my righteousness is your righteousness because I'm holding you in this covenant with my strength and my power. So Abraham is called not only righteous, but he's called the friend of God, which, which means that, um, well, we use the word friend very lightly today. Lord, you can get a friend on Facebook and not even know who they are. But again, in the days, ancient days of Bible days, the word friend meant a covenant partner. It meant one that I am in blood oath covenant with. So Abraham is the friend of God. He's included into the covenant. He's called the righteous. But again, I say, what was his part in this? It says he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And the other verse said, by the faith, uh, believe, faith, and that was counted to him for righteousness. So 
to what is this believing God that does this incredible work to us? Well, you see, again, it's not mental ascent. We say we believe something, which means we give the nod of the head to it. Yes, it is so. It's true, I suppose. If we're very vague, we believe it. No, this word believe means I believe it so that I place my life upon this as final absolute truth and I do so with certainty with assurance it means I entrust my life upon the being and words of the unchangeable faithful God I am utterly abandoned to the fact that he will keep and do his word as to Abraham so to me to the world the word trust, believe. In the Bible, it it expresses, what can I say? It expresses a state of mind which has received truth. I've got to emphasize this. See, today, I, I hear it. People say, you've got to believe. You've got to believe. And I want to say, shut up and tell me what. What do I have to believe? I find that so much today, persons have faith in faith. They believe in belief. (laughs) No. Believing. Faith, you could say, is the eye of my heart. And that's why, really, to believe, you're not aware of it. Because I'm not aware I've got eyes, except for right now when I'm talking about it. But my eye sees. And faith is that seeing. I, I... I see this God, this incredible God revealed in Jesus. He is the truth. It's unshakable truth. And that, that's, that's where faith is drawn out. See, he, he is sure. There's no, no doubt. He is true. He is trustworthy. He is faithful to all that he's revealed himself to be. Therefore, with all certainty, I can rest my very life upon him, upon God himself and and his covenant word. And so, this believing, it's an inward, personal, self-surrendering, reliance, upon him it is then taking that truth I've seen that and I take it I dare to he said to so I dare to do it and this truth is the very foundation of my life defines all other thoughts defines my hope I take it because he offers it in himself And then belief rests in that certainty. It is firmly fixed in that truth that it has seen. And then that truth that I now have taken takes me. And I am supported by the strong arms 
of his very being. And all that is contained in this word belief in the original scripture. This is what it means. It is to rest as in the arms of a parent. So the suckling child in the arms of its mother. That, that is, that's belief I have not only taken, but I've rested into. And now that truth holds me. So it's an unconditional trust in the Lord. And it, that means then I'm going to face a gazillion times in life when it doesn't look as if he's keeping his word. But I'm committed. And that's the story of Abraham. And that was the whole story of the birth of Isaac and everything else. That it didn't look as if God was doing anything. But Abraham believed God means... I believe you, not circumstance. I believe you, not what I see in life. I rest in you when I don't understand. And faith, belief, ultimately comes to saying it. I confess it. I say this truth along with God. And I declare my my person as resting in him and what he said. Now, that chapter that I've taken these minutes to explain, where in trusting, that is, God says, this I will do, I have sworn to do it. That's his righteousness. He will do what he says. And he will include you into the covenant. What then can I do? I believe him. I trust in him. He becomes that solid foundation of truth. And I participate with God. And remember, God passed through the pieces for himself and for you. So so your being in the covenant doesn't depend upon the fragility of whether you read your Bible for 10 minutes today. Your being in the covenant rests upon the oath of God, the righteous one. And of course, God did pass through the pieces on behalf of both of us. Because Jesus is that God who spoke to Abraham, who actually became human. And so when I look at Jesus, I see God and human united He's carrying us into himself. And he himself deals with everything that would separate us from him. In the shedding of his blood, he announces to us that we are forgiven. Guilt is gone. Shame is gone. In the blood of Jesus, Jesus entering into our death, He announces to us our worth, our significance, that he would never give up until he fulfilled his word to us. You want worth? You think worth is when your neighbor smiles at you? No, your worth is that God, your creator, refused to give up, even though it took him into the heart of our death and the shedding of the blood of God. He came to lay hold upon you and I and bring us into covenant union with himself in the person of Jesus that we might participate in the covenant 
placed there by himself. We are righteous, having trusted into the righteousness of God. That means we have face-to-face union with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are as close to the Father as Jesus is. He limitlessly gives himself to us. And so Jesus said in John, I believe it's chapter 8, where he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Yes, that's when he, there in Genesis 15, Abraham saw it, that, that God would go that far, that he would join the human race in order to bring us to himself in this covenant. And it says that as Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Reckoned. <laughs> it's another word we don't use much today. Let me just simply tell you what it means, reckoned. It means, well, it was used of a personal opinion or a personal judgment that a person might have of the value of something. So they reckoned the value of this. That is, it's my personal opinion. It's my my judgment based on what I know. Reckoned. That is God's personal opinion, God's judgment is that Abraham is righteous. He is included in the covenant. Reckon. It it means to count something up in the mind. It means to compute something in your mind. So to doing math in your head and reckon it. And do you realize Reckon, that's God's math, God's mathematics. He adds, that is, God counts up all that he has sworn in covenant. He counts up in his mathematics the incarnation of God joining our human race. He counts up when God the Son, Jesus, entered into our death and suffering. He counts up his triumph and his resurrection when he was in the midst of that for you and as you. And he draws the line. And God's mathematic, God's logic says that you are now not only cleansed from all sin, but you are placed face to face with the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. That's God's reckoning, you see. He took an inventory. He computed it. And the result is, you are declared, really declared righteous. I I say really because, um, well, let let me take this very quickly. I mean, I've heard preachers, and I come away with the feeling that this whole gospel and you being righteous is sort of God cooking the books. You know, it's a legal fiction. I mean, I've heard it, which makes me believe you've heard it too, that it's something like this, that, that God declares you righteous. But down here in the real world, come on, we all know that's not true. No, right down here, we are struggling and trying to keep all the rules to be righteous. So, 
it's a good job the IRS doesn't investigate God's books because they're all screwed up. He's got, I guess he's got two, two sets of books. It sounds like the mafia, doesn't it? Where in the one book he says you're righteous, the other one is where you're really at. That is damnable lie. This is God's opinion of you. And God speaks an opinion out of the truth. God never, never speaks words of legal fiction. God never says, well, this is your state, but this is where you're really at. No, no, no. Look, you are, by the truth of God who cannot lie, by the righteous God who swore by his own being to achieve this in your life, you are included into the divine covenant. You believed. You believed this righteous God who fulfilled every word he said. And you believe you surrendered to that and that God took you. You took what he said and, or as Jesus says, I am in you and you are in me. And he declares you righteous. This is the unchangeable truth concerning who you are, which cancels out all other calculations. Because you're sitting there saying, well, I, I did this and I did that and I did that. Look, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And in the eyes of truth, God doesn't see that whole screwed up past. He only sees you now being tutored by the Holy Spirit to discover who you really are today. You've got to learn to view yourself through the reckoning of God. You've got to do math with God and come up with God's answers. It's the word repentance, but we lost that word back in the 12th century. Totally, totally, totally lost it. Repentance doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Nor does it say, I promise, I promise, I won't. Nor does it mean that I'll do this to compensate for doing that. No, just flush that down the toilet. The meaning of the repent is to have the mind and understanding and reason of God, to think along with God as he thinks. That's repentance. And when you believe who he truly is, then it changes your whole mind, only it takes time to learn how to think with God and see yourself as God sees you. Huh. Thinking God's thoughts with him as he thinks them. So never you see, your, your identity is no longer that you're a sinner. You don't present yourself a, a, in terms of sin. That, if you do that, you're saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mere blip on the radar screen. No, the death and resurrection of Jesus was cosmic. The death and resurrection of Jesus did everything I've been saying tonight. Huh. So you never present yourself to God as, I'm an unworthy sinner. 
I feel the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder saying, I've got good news for you. Jesus came. See, the blood of Jesus cancels that out. You're not an unworthy sinner. You're a child of God face to face with the Father, His delight. And the one that finally He got His hands on as He determined before creation to do. You never present yourself as a beggar outside the covenant asking for a dime, trying to find enough earnings to get inside. Well, no, it's not legal fiction. See, it's not only the gift of God, but it's the power of God. (laughs) When, when, When God reckons you righteous... In that same moment, the Holy Spirit comes to the very part of your being. And He within you is the power of righteousness. That is that now you begin to learn how you deal with people in accord with this righteousness that you've been made one with. Which means you love one another as God loves you. But that's another story. We've got to get back to this next week. So I trust this has thrown some light upon this glorious word, righteousness. Oh, blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You will be filled next week. Father, we give you thanks. And in giving thanks, we bless, we call your blessing upon every person listening. The blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now encompass you, wrap you in his arms, breathe life into you, and reveal who you truly are in Christ Jesus. So I bless you this night, and I declare this is the way it is.